Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We talked about a few different things today, a lot going on. We just had an election uh, and the Education Ballot Initiative Invest in Ed uh, just got kicked off of the ballot. So we'll talk about both those things today. Uh, but we're recording this on a Thursday the day of the memorial of our Arizona Senator, John McCain. So it's a, a day of remembrance, and, and Dad, you wrote a great column uh, about your recollection and reflection um, on him that published over the weekend. Um, and I just think it's great that uh, both sides of you know the political spectrum right now are coming together to offer uh, their, their memories and, and pointing out the character and and values that McCain stood for. So uh, Joe, Vice President Joe Biden spoke today. President Obama is going to speak at his funeral. Um, I think just in a divisive time right now, it's, it's um, you know, it's a, been a solid and, and touching and uniting farewell uh, as much as we could have a uniting farewell right now. And I appreciate the kind comments about um, the column, the, the theme of the column was that um, John McCain fit his era in Arizona in much the same way that Barry Goldwater fit his era. Uh, but he was an international figure. And I think McCain would be very pleased at the way in which his death and the celebration of his life has been used uh, to make these larger points about what we have in common uh, and our need to be able to overcome our political differences, recognize those points in common. Um, so uh, I, I think those that have arranged um, his uh, memorials and those who have given the speeches, including my good friend, former Attorney General Grant Woods, I, I have honored uh, John McCain in the way that this remembrance has been handled. Yeah. So the uh, so the big news that just broke also uh, last night is uh, the ballot initiative invest in ed, which would have uh, hiked income tax rates on, on high income earners um, was designed to do that, which one of the controversies is uh, that it might've done more than that. So it was, uh, it was a ballot initiative. It was gathered, signatures gathered. It was going through the legal process. Um, it was challenged uh, in, in court uh, got appealed, and the Supreme Court just decided yesterday to uh, remove the initiative off of the ballot, so it will not be uh, before the ballot in November. And it's qu uh, creating quite a stir. Uh, people that advocated it obviously are upset about the decision. There's even uh, being charges, even by the Democratic uh, nominee, David Garcia, using the word corruption and, and, and rigged. And so <clears throat> there's a protest going on actually as we speak in front of the Arizona Supreme Court. So let's break this down, uh, starting with just talking about the, the decision itself. Um, 
when you gather signatures, the ballot initiative needs a description, a hundred word description of what it's doing. And the challenge, one of the challenges, um, the legal challenges was that the description didn't accurately uh, describe the, the content of the bill, specifically or two, the two things that the court found that um, violated uh, this expectation of, of an accurate description is that the way they use percentage points, that um, instead of having percentage increase, uh, or instead of having percentage point increase, they described it as a percentage increase, which uh, underestimated technically, mathematically what it was. And the second thing was, they took out, not intentionally, but took out indexing, uh, which adjusts tax rates for inflation, and the uh, opponents, the people that filed the initiative, uh, were arguing that the actual effect of this uh, piece of legislation wouldn't just to be increasing tax on the rich, but also increase it on everyone else over time as these indexing gets uh, eliminated. Um, so is that, uh, what do you make of that, uh, of the lawsuit, uh, and is that enough basis to reject this? Uh, I will be interested in reading the reasoning of the court in uh, striking down the initiative for a faulty description. Uh, the court needs to proceed very, very carefully. Um, the law requires a 100 word description of the major provisions. But there's also a notice that's required that this is a description by the proponents and it's not the full initiative. And there's a requirement that the full initiative be there uh, anytime um, signatures are, are gathered. Um, so we, we don't want to get in the position where there's a lot of nitpicking over what you can squeeze into 100 words. This one, however, was egregious in two respects. Um, the first is that the summary of its tax effect on the wealthy was misleading. It wasn't incomplete. It was misleading because it said that they would have a very modest um, increase of three and a half to four and a half percent, and that uh, grossly understand that that sounds mild. It's just a little bit of an increase, when in reality it was a nearly a doubling of the uh, tax rate um, at the highest level. So it it was not just incomplete; it was misleading. The omission of the effect on indexing was understandable because the proponents didn't mean to do that. Right. At least they say that they didn't mean to do that. And this flaw is their own fault. Um, the effect on indexing the tax brackets for inflation was discovered by legislative council. State law permits proponents of initiatives to submit their initiatives to legislative council for review prior to circulating them. Um, the Invest for Ed folks didn't do that. Yeah, that was even, you know, in the hearing, uh, in the first, I watched uh, all the hearings for this when they were putting the language together for the description. 
And uh, they asked they asked them straight up, like, did you did you submit this to us? And they said no. Um, and e- even in there, they're you know they they said, hey, yeah, we if we would have done this and this, it could have been much. It, it would have been clearer that we, that this was being kept rather than eliminated. The the, the, the attorneys um, at legislative council are very very good. They write all the laws. Um, that the legislators propose, and they are scrupulously nonpartisan. They they serve both Republican and Democratic legislators. So they would have, if the proponents would have submitted it, they would have said, well, it has this effect, and then the proponents could have redrafted it before circulating it and, and avoided that. But they didn't do that, and so it has that effect. So you had a description of a provision that was grossly misleading, and you had um, the omission of a major effect, and and the law requires that the principal components of the initiative be included in the 100-word description. Um, so I I'm, I <laughs> am a deep-seated opponent of raising income tax rates, uh, uh, and so I'm happy that this won't go into into that, that this won't have a chance to be approved by the voters. I don't think it would have been approved by the voters, uh, but I think the court needs to be very careful in how it reasons its way to the conclusion that it reached, so that we don't get into into the business of having constant challenges to these hundred word descriptions that are supposed to be a minor part of the process. When are we going to get those? decisions because that's um that's a very controversial thing right now too because people are saying well this is a stacked court Ducey added two people to the supreme court expanded it from five to seven and now he got this major piece of you know major challenge and he won so without you know right now everyone's making these accusations and it's kind of hard to say it's, it's kind of hard to even have arguments back and forth based on the substance because we don't know which judge decided what and what their reason was. Well, and, and the notice indicated that it was a split court. So it, there, there is a minority opinion. There are, there are those members of the court who felt that the initiative should not have been removed from the ballot for this reason. Um, the answer to your question is there's no way of knowing. Um, it depends upon, I mean, you've got, seven members of the court, they write majority opinions, they write dissents, uh, and there is an iterative process. So um, the majority gets to see what the minority wrote, the minority gets to see what the majority wrote, and and then there's um, rewrites uh, that occur until finally the court decides, okay, we're, we're done threshing out this issue, we're going to publish the opinion. Uh, My guess is that um, this one will take some time because I suspect the majority will want to be very careful in what they say. The minority uh, will want to write a thoroughgoing um, dissent, uh, and the majority will want to carefully consider and rebut those arguments. If if it was if if it wasn't a result that would have been affected by the addition of 
two justices. It would be nice to know that before the election so that the argument that you mentioned could at least be set aside. Um, if it's, but if it's 4-3, uh, then that will inflame that argument. And is there any way to expedite that? Do you think there's any possibility of speeding that process up? It's completely up to the justices. Um, if it is, they are not unaware of what goes around, goes on around them. Uh, so if it was a 5-2 split that wasn't affected by uh, the expansion of the court and the two nominees, the additional nominees that Ducey had, they might want to expedite it to try to get themselves out of the middle of a um, gubernatorial race. Uh, but I think that they will be more concerned with what they have to say, both the majority and the dissent, and that will be uh, what takes first priority. Right. So I that's a long-winded way of saying I have no idea <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when this decision might, we'll come, might come out. And there's also a question about the the actual uh, language of the initiative, whether it keeps indexing or not, their their side, the invest in ed side, and the lawyers are arguing, well, you should, you know, we clearly tried to, so you should interpret this as that that we did because we we you know we wanted to and we say we wanted to in the thing. You wrote an article though saying that you know, so the question is, is there, you know, an is there two sides to this story? But from your reading of it, your close legal reading of it, you wrote that literally they they eliminated indexing. I don't think a court had would have any choice but to say that they repealed four years of indexing because the new language in the initiative flatly says these shall be the tax rates uh, for tax year 2019. So there's, there's no way that a court could say, well, even though it says that, that's not going to be the tax rates in yeah. 2019. Yeah. I believe that there was an argument from that point on uh, that um, indexing would then apply. So you'd lose four years, and it would then apply. I don't think it was the best argument. It would have required inserting language uh, into a provision of the statute that the people who wrote the initiative didn't, didn't, didn't but, 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 but a court could say, well, that was an oversight. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of getting rid of four years worth of indexing, which would cost taxpayers other than the wealthy $50 million a year, I don't, I don't think a judge would have had any option, but to say it had that effect. What would you say to the proponents who will, will say like, okay, yeah, um, maybe, Maybe this indexing wasn't there. Shouldn't you even, at least with the errors in there, you know, shouldn't we have more respect for the initiative process to err on the side of letting it go on and letting the voters decide? The voters have a chance to, you know, reject it um, if they find these flaws in it and and believe that it has these negative effects. And I, you know, I part of me, even though I personally didn't like the initiative, I didn't like that. Uh, they weren't really transparent with the people of our of our movement at the time. I was active in the in the Red for Red movement, and this came out of the blue for everyone. This this initiative, and it was kind of like a, you know, 
I have a lot of problems with with that element of it. But um, I would think that it would be a lot healthier for our body politic and our and our society here in in Arizona if it was if we were able to duke it out now that it's on that now that you know they had gotten the signatures gotten to the election and said okay we have this decision that people don't want a, a, ta- a tax like i didn't think it was going to pass either but i think it'd been healthier to say look voters don't want this rather than now they're able you know the teachers are able to say and the and the movement people are saying oh this is rigged it would have passed you know and they're i think it's premature and reckless to call it corrupt and rigged without knowing all the things that we just talked about that we don't know. Um, but that's how they're playing it. And I, um, so shouldn't, I guess the question, should, shouldn't we err on the side of the people's right to gather initiatives and, and have that on there? And, and I'm sure you have adumbrated much of what the minority um, opinion uh, will say. The majority opinion will say that the integrity of the signature gathering process was corrupted by having a description that had a major misleading characterization of the extent of the tax increase on the wealthy and a major omission, the effect on causing higher taxes for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the majority opinion will say um, that the signature gathering process itself had been damaged uh, and harmed uh, by that misleading description. Um, So who knows if the people who signed the petition would have signed the petition if the true effect on tax rates for the wealthy uh, were exposed, and the increase in their own taxes uh, was right. uh, documented. So that that will be um, the exchange of legal opinions. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, very divisive time all over the place, not only with the election, but now, but now this here in Arizona. Um, but ultimately... We need to have respect for you know the rule the rule of law, which is you know established there, and um, I hope that uh, those those decisions kind of clarify and and we're able to accept even even if someone disagrees that we're able to accept you know a legal a legal outcome of our of our systems. I want to talk about what might be next with uh, education, but first, so like you know, this is fail. What what do we go from here? Um, but first, before we end with that, let's talk quickly about what effect this might have on the upcoming election. So there's um, there's some talk about just firing people up. I know people are fired up, um, saying that we're still going to remember in November and you know vote for. Um, David Garcia or a vote for uh, the Democratic nominee for superintendent of schools, uh, Kathy Hoffman. Now those votes and the, leg- and the state legislator votes, those are the votes for invest in it. Uh, so do you think that this does translate into higher turnout and does this just add to the blue wave? Is a blue wave coming? Uh, I doubt it. There are those who are saying that it will galvanize turnout um, in a way that is harmful to Republican prospects and helpful to Democratic prospects. 
I didn't get the impression that you had anywhere near the same level of enthusiasm for Invest in Ed uh, as was manifested in the Red for Ed grassroots movement uh, for teacher salaries. Um, so I'm not, I, I just don't think that the forces are out there uh, that were galvanized behind the, in, in favor of having this option. Um, education will be, continue to be a major issue. Um, but I doubt that it will have a, any more major effect on turnout than the things that we're already looking towards a more favorable um, turnout posture for Democrats, particularly the Trump effect. Trump has all over the country been a turnout machine for Democrats. I think that's almost, I, I sense that too, that the, that the movement, the Red Fred movement is much, uh, you know, there's divisions, there's uh, people that have, that have fallen out. And I think that's, I think people got burned out too. You know, I, uh, that was stressful last, last year. And um, I think you, you know, they're <clears throat> rushing out to do the strike when I don't think it was necessary. It wasn't the, wasn't the last resort in that situation. They just gotten a, you know, 20% raise offer basically by the, by the governor. Um, so rushing out to do that strike, which is very stressful and then immediately being pounded with now we're doing this tax increase that no one, you know, participated in making. And then, you know, the whole, the whole thing transitioned to this thing that wasn't a part of it at first, you know, and, and, and so now I think it becomes much harder to ask people to get out and, and be active for congressional, you know, state congressional seats and, and all that because um, because they have I, I think it's sad that, that what could have been a you know a unifying thing and if you made a more rational uh, response to to the 2020 offer you know I, I think I might be wrong but I think you could have nurtured that um, into more of a force and more of a nonpartisan and, and unifying force going into uh, going into November um, so what's next then? So Investnet is not there. We have this 2020 plan, but it's only, you know, one of the biggest critiques is that it's not really a 2020 plan because you've only got one legislative thing. You're going to have, you know, it depends whether it turns into another 20 or 10% after this year depends on who's in the legislature and what deals you're able to make and who's the governor. Um, and even if, there is there's no dedicated revenue stream that you know Vestnet was trying to fill that gap. Um, you've written about different options. Um, what happens from here? I mean, I guess uh, Joanna Allhands, uh, columnist, uh, your colleague wrote a column about um, you know we should be asking all the people running to come up with plans, and, and she wrote that hopefully we see a lot of plans coming out so we can we can vote on them. Do you think that's going to happen? Um, are people going to go back and read your columns and <laughs> put some proposals together? Or, and then there's also the the sales tax. Uh, what is it? One twenty six. Uh, the the ban on on sales tax uh, increase to the sales that that might prevent or to, handicap to, legislators to in the sales future. tax base to include services. Right, right, That's right. what it would be. So where where do we go from here? 
Uh, Ducey's position uh, is that we can continue to uh, increase funding for education out of exist the revenues that are produced by existing tax rates. That argument has actually gotten stronger. Um, state revenue collections are up really health healthily. Um, I'm going to uh, do a column next week, I believe, in which I'm going to sort of examine that phenomenon. Uh, I'm relatively confident I will continue to conclude that the most prudent course of action is to increase consumption taxes to put state finances on a more stable basis. But there certainly is a better argument that the governor has based upon uh, recent results. David Garcia, I think, is in a tough spot. Um, invest for Ed is not something he can write anymore, so he now needs to say what he's in favor of. It's not enough to say, I want increased funding for education, and Ducey didn't provide enough. Um, he's got to come out with something that says, here's how much more uh, I think uh, we should invest in education. Here's how I'm going to raise the money. So I'm anticipating the political need for a Garcia plan. It will, be, it will be dangerous, um, but um, I don't see how he gets to the finish line without a fairly s specific educational proposal to make his case against his claim that the governor has underfunded education. Any chance he just says, I'm, I'm for this invest in ed plan and getting and taxing the rich to pay for education? Uh, well, he, he has said that invest in ed wasn't the end of it for him. Um, so he no longer can say, well, that's the first step. Uh, after I'm elected, I'll tell you the second step. He's got to kind of say, here's where I want to go, whole hog, and here's how I will get there. There are two different business groups that are interested in the proposals that I have um, propounded over the, over the course of years, um, looking at something on the consumption tax side. Uh, I think that um, they will be very interested in trying to gear up something for the 2020 ballot. Um, you might be able to get a, depending upon, well, I, I think it's very doubtful that you will have a political configuration that would put a tax increase on the ballot via a special election, the way that it was done in 2010 under Governor Brewer. Um, so I think we're probably looking at 2020. My chief concern is that I think at present the Arizona Education Association has unconstructive leadership, unlike what it had um, with the governor's proposal to increase what the schools get from the state land trust. Um, the head of the AEA leapt on uh, this tax the rich proposal right off the box. So ideally, you would have a business community, education community, coalition going hand in hand together to the ballot with something. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm not seeing that in the cards without some kind of change in attitude um, by um, the teacher union leadership. Yeah, and it's almost like that. You know, I've I've been saying this from the beginning. Like, 
should be trying to get along with the business. I mean, the education and business should go, should kind of go hand in hand. That's kind of the, the lifeblood of our, um, our economy and our, and our society right there. Um, and I, I think the potential is there to do that. I, I believe that there's an <clears throat> appetite and a willingness in the business community to step forward. Um, but it has to be something that funds education, doesn't try to institute redistributionist tax policy. Do you think that there is some blended, uh, you know, slight income tax across the board, a uh, combination of either, you know, your consumption tax or a different sales tax in addition to some sort of income tax? Is there any... I don't know, what is the range of possibilities that the business community might want to support? I, I don't think there will be, let me say, there will be strong enough opposition in the business community to any increase in income taxes that even if you have some segment of the business community that's willing to include that in the mix, overall the business community will be opposed for that. If you're going to have a broad-based coalition um, of the business community and educators, it's going to have to be a consumption tax. And what uh, is the consumption tax exactly? It's the sales tax, the current existing sales tax on retail goods, an increase in that. It could be an expansion of the sales tax base. You'd need to get around the ballot proposition that's probably going to pass this fall, but you could, you could do that with your own constitutional amendment that undoes that. Or I have proposed eliminating income and sales taxes and having a broad-based business gross receipts tax. Um, th those things could raise the amount of money. There's ways to reduce their alleged regressivity. Broadening the sales tax base actually reduces uh, the regressivity. Which is the main, which is the main, you know, objection. argument against uh, the sales tax that it's right. it's regressive and it hits the poor harder than, than anyone else in terms of proportions yeah, if, of their income. If if the education community is going to wait the day until there is an overwhelming consensus in the state in favor of redistributionist income tax policy, um, I think we're going to be waiting a long time before we increase funding schools to the level that I think that we should reach. Yeah. Well, I hope that, uh, I feel like it's going to be tense uh, here and, you know, up until the election, even even beyond. But I do hope that people are putting their plans out there and we can have a constructive, uh, substantive, you know, debates and, and arguments and eventually coalesce and come to a, an agreement, a consensus, because everyone agrees that we need more funding in schools and uh, that education is important. I think just granting that in each other, you know, regardless of what group you come from or what, you know, what political party you are, just let's, you know, grant that in each other and try to try to uh, come up with some solutions. That's common sense. And we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking politics here. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see how, we'll see how it plays out um, from here. Thanks everybody for listening. This is the political notebook podcast. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or any other podcasting app.